Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Before we get on to all the dramas whirling around us at the moment and your brilliant questions, or some of them, because there have been so many, I want to thank all of you who came to two of the gigs that I uh, have done in recent days. Um, Reopening the main hall in King's Place was, it was kind of moving. People were thrilled to be there and the venue did it brilliantly in terms of the COVID issues with social distancing and and all the rest of it and still managed to create an atmosphere. And for all of those of you who watched, I call it the cheap tickets uh, on the streaming, thank you for tuning in around the country or perhaps around the world. Who knows? But we had a great time uh, at that gig. And then I went down to... Um, the South Coast to Shoreham and the Rope Tackle Art Centre. And that too was a event that reopened the centre after a long, long time. And it was also great to see people there and a kind of sense of excitement that we were all getting together for a live gig. If the government permits, I'll be at the Greenwich Theatre on Saturday, where they too, I know, are taking around-the-clock care to make sure it's COVID safe and social distancing is in place. So, if you can get to it. I think we all had a great time in those two gigs and indeed on the live stream. So I hope those of you in and around that area and those of you who fancy a grown-up evening out, if it's allowed, that would be a great thing to do and I look forward to seeing you there. Now, if it's okay with all of you, um, what I'm going to do is reflect on some of the things that are going on at the moment uh, and then we'll come to your questions. I find it so interesting uh, that the virus has exposed one of the real problems about certainly the way England constructs its public services and delivery. I know I've mentioned this before, but it's becoming very topical again. There was an interesting sequence on the Today programme on the Monday of this week where there were two different Uh, dimensions among many COVID related. One was the call by some Tory MPs including Sir Bernard Jenkin for the army to come in and sort out the testing crisis. Uh, Britain's well-beating test and traces where you can't really get these tests. Get the army in. Now that's so interesting because well I'll come to that in a minute but before I do There was another dimension to the Today programme on Monday, which was about the end of the franchising in the railways. And Grant Shapps came on, the Transport Secretary, who is a good interviewee, and he knows when to be candid and when not to be and how not to be. And he admitted that the franchise system had caused a degree of chaos. He claimed for it, somewhat contentiously, Uh, the big rise in use of trains over the years. I mean, if you can't drive anywhere without being in a traffic jam immediately, you have to take the train. And that explains the rise, not the brilliant franchising system, which, of course, has caused a degree of chaos. But he illustrated one of the problems with it, which is that you could go to a station platform and there would be three different price options for the same journey, and you can mention many other things. The, the problem, whenever there has been a crisis in, uh, on the trains, is identifying precisely who is accountable 
or what body is accountable. So many are involved in that fractured delivery of service that no one really is responsible. And that has been the problem all the way along. So, in the same way as Matt Hancock has complained about, to quote him, the atomization of the National Health Service, an atomization which was hugely intensified in the first term of this government, the coalition era, uh, that era of speedy, radical reform that was not remotely scrutinised with the uh, degree of questioning that it merited. And there's a counter there now, because again, like with the trains, levers are pulled, nothing happens or the wrong thing happens, and no one's quite sure who's meant to be delivering uh, with the conflicting array of agencies, uh, private sector, public sector, lawyers, accountants, all involved, different levels of responsibility or no responsibility at all. And that brings me back to the army, because... It's really interesting that although in their perverse way, ministers in recent decades, and it happened under New Labour to some extent as well, opt for this fracturing of public services, they think genuinely it was going to deliver better services for patients, empower patients, all this kind of fantasy nonsense. Uh, it did none of those things, uh, but that was the motivation. But they all love the army. And the reason they love the army, these politicians, the rulers, in inverted commas, because no prime minister, as I reflect on my book, uh, uh, Modern Prime Ministers, Reflections on Leadership, none of them feel really uh, as if they're ruling most of the time. But they do when the army's involved, because the line of accountability, the line of command to use a military term, is so clear. So Blair used to love it when he used to get the generals in and the commanders, or whatever they're called, and discuss whether they should go into Kosovo or go into join America and go into Iraq, because compared with all the complexities of delivering via a fractured NHS or delivering better trains when about 25 different agencies are responsible for that delivery, he would have a meeting with the generals and off they went. And so it has been with COVID. When the army got involved, Johnson or Hancock clicked their fingers and they were involved in the building of those sudden temporary hospitals, which thankfully were unfilled, but they were right to put them there absolutely right to put them there that it's better to have surplus uh, spaces than a shortage and it happened very quickly uh, because there are no 25 different agencies you know on the many times britain uh, has gone to war in recent decades you don't have to consult with i don't know the equivalent of richard branson uh, at one end of the delivery of a kind of army and then deliver a kind of I don't know, National Army England and a Public Army England and then liaise with about 25 different local bodies. You just have a clear line of command and accountability. And I think the calls from those Tory MPs, Bernard Jenkins and others, to say get the army involved in ramping up the tests is a perfectly valid one because it's the only public service in England. Obviously, there are issues... Um, with testing around the UK, actually. 
but public services tend to be devolved to Scotland, Wales and all the rest of it. But it's the only public service in England with that clear line of command, where if you say to a general, get the tests ramped up, test facilities, test centres, let's build them, let's get people in, and it will happen. There are no intermediating agencies as there are in all the other fractured public services. So just a little observation there about how at the end of this nightmare of COVID, there should also be an end of this romanticised idea that if you break up all these services into different parts, it empowers the patient or the passenger or the pupil. It does the exact opposite. And that phrase, that ubiquitous phrase about taking back control and being left behind, they're interesting phrases, got nothing to do with the European Union at all. Uh, they were used famously in the Brexit referendum campaign. It's all about a sense of powerlessness in dealing with these public services, because you've no idea where to turn to, who is accountable for what. And if you wait for an operation, or you find that you're on a train, which is a catastrophe, who is it? Network Rail, the train operating company, some other mediating agency which didn't do something which they should have done, and so on. When it's the army, it's the army. Simplicity, clear lines of command and accountability produce better outcomes for the patient, the passenger, and all the rest of it. That doesn't mean that some people say, oh, you know what, He's got, he, it's back to the 1970s. It's all about going back to the 1970s. Not at all. The models of the 1970s failed for different reasons. And actually there, too, the lines of accountability were not very clear in the sort of uh, nationalised railway, nationalised railways or the other nationalised industries that were themselves kind of bureaucratic and incompetent in different ways but yet that it should be state-owned say the railways with clear lines of accountability and modern forms of management other European countries do it I think is one of the lessons of Covid. Just one other thing before I get to some of your uh, questions uh, it's I mean I like this podcast because I think it's really interesting to try and delve a bit below the surface and obviously you need a bit of time to do that you can't do it in three minutes in a discussion with three other people you know on a broadcasting outlet it does need a bit of time but sometimes also what's happening on the surface is interesting and it is a moment when the usually very loyal right-wing newspapers turn on a Tory prime minister it happened famously with John Major after Britain left the exchange rate mechanism and the newspapers who had been robustly partisan in the April, to put it politely, in the April 1992 election, then went for Major after the exchange rate mechanism. And it has huge consequences, even if people don't buy newspapers anymore. It still has huge consequences now on lots of levels. On a media level, 
it influences the BBC when they pick up a culture of disillusionment amongst those newspapers, the Times, which is a huge influence on the BBC because mistakenly parts of the BBC see the Times as kind of, to use that terrible term, centrist or almost impartial. It's not. Uh, but if the Times turns, they think, oh, blimey, Johnson's in trouble. The Mail, obviously, uh, usually a keen supporter of the Tories and so on. And they have... Gone for Johnson in recent times. The Spectator, too, with an unflattering cover saying, where's Boris? The BBC with it, oh, yeah. Now, what the BBC won't do, because they are genuinely, or they try all the time to be impartial, it's a myth that they are uh, on in any level, left-wing, right-wing, all the rest of it. But what, but what they do tend to do is follow media fashion. And so it w will give them a licence or a sense that, say, they could put a do a report on the state of the leadership of the Tory party and contain within that an unflattering image, say, of Johnson, because it echoes what they've been reading in the Tory papers. So that kind of criticism feeds on itself. But that's the media side of it, important though it is. There is another side too. These criticisms are read by the person, him or herself, usually him. So it will get to Johnson as it got to John Major. John Major was more sensitive because he was as a personality and he had a much smaller majority. Famously, uh, Douglas Hurd used to say he was uh, Major's foreign secretary, that they used to have to hide the first editions from Major that arrived late at night, the night before, in number 10, because it meant Major wouldn't get to sleep, he'd be so worked up. Now, all of that is really bad for a prime minister's own self-confidence and self-confidence drains that in itself feeds on itself and Johnson too who can't really cope with criticism which is why he's got such a weak uh, cabinet will read this stuff he's a journalist and although I don't think he obsesses about newspapers as much as some and has been told by Dominic Cummings that the media doesn't matter that much as a journalist, he will read this stuff, especially The Spectator, which he used to edit, and, and, and some of the others. And it will affect his self-confidence. He will dare to wonder whether he is up to it if he keeps on reading that he's not. And the other group that will read it are Tory MPs and Tory activists, already having a sense of doubt about their leader, their prime minister, fueled when they read others previously supportive saying maybe he's not up to the job. Now at this stage they're doing it fairly politely. If Gordon Brown had been prime minister presiding over the shambles of recent months uh, he would have been slaughtered and um, that hasn't happened but there has been a turning and that will feed on itself. And it does feel to me at the moment, in some respects, very much like the 1992 to 97 parliament. The Tory press turning on a prime minister they think is incompetent or fear is incompetent. And then the response of Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer's response, I've mentioned this before in relation to Brexit, but more widely reminds me very much of the sort of Gordon Brown approach when he was Shadow Chancellor between 1992 to 1997. 
It was very interesting hearing it got lost in all the COVID drama on Monday, but in this uh, slightly surreal, slightly wholly surreal virtual Labour conference. Annalisa Dodd gave a speech as Shadow Chancellor, her first conference speech as Shadow Chancellor. And it was very similar to the kind of stuff Gordon Brown used to do when he was Shadow Chancellor. She tried to frame an argument that the Tory government couldn't be trusted on public spending, that it was spending inefficiently, contracts doled out on COVID that didn't deliver, all kinds of orders made that were the wrong orders for the wrong kind of PHE or whatever. And that was just the kind of argument Brown used to make in 92 to 97. He used to list wasted spending plans that the Tories had initiated. So to use one of his favourite phrases, the dividing line becomes efficient spending versus inefficient spending, not high or low public spending, an argument that Brown concluded could not be won by Labour with the kind of media that Britain has. So uh, that that is such a direct echo. I assume and suspect that Brown has had conversations with both Keir Starmer and Annalisa Dodd. And then there is a wider framing that is clearly Starmer's first objective, which is to make the, again, that famous phrase, the dividing line, competence versus incompetence, which was the dividing line that both Blair and Brown sought and very successfully achieved uh, to place in the politics of the uh, 92-97 parliament. Uh, as I've said before on the po podcast, uh, you know, the romantics uh, listening and me would prefer an ideological debate, but Labour tends to lose those in uh, England anyway. And I think Starmer realises anyway, it's a very long haul before the next election. And to win the right to be heard in terms of other ideas, he needs to win the competence argument first. And if he frames, and he's got plenty of ammunition at the moment, even Tories agree, incompetence on this wacky, bizarre number 10 operation combined with a weak cabinet not challenging this wacky, bizarre number 10 operation, even though a lot of them know it is wacky, bizarre, and not, not especially competent. He then has space, Starmer, to, to some extent, develop policy ideas uh, with an audience that is at last attentive. And so I think that is the kind of sequence being played out, as it was in 92 to 97. That is not, by the way, a prediction that the election result in 2024 will be the same as 1997. It can't be, for many reasons. Uh, Labour has lost Scotland, and the Tories are now 80-plus seats ahead. Uh, John Major, by 1992, didn't even really have an overall majority. By 1997, sorry. So there are big differences in terms of the politics of now, but that is the dynamic. And watch out for it for the rest of this virtual Labour conference week and much more uh, besides. Now, if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to get to your 
questions because they are so good that uh, they deserve a bit of time. So now, one of the best questioners so far since we've introduced uh, questions and answers uh, is Noah Keat. Uh, he sent in some before. He sent all kind of Brexit-related ones this week. I'll just do... No, I'm going to just kind of conflate the three, Noah, because they're, they're all interconnected. Do, do we think at the 11th hour, last-minute negotiations, disagreements were always going to happen? Or have they become an inevitability because of the pandemic? I don't think it's much to do with the pandemic, Noah. I think it is all to do with Johnson's decision. And I think it has been one of his most calamitous, a kind of false machismo, to say there would be no extension to the talks. The talks must end on December the 31st, in reality, therefore, by the autumn. This is a complicated trade negotiation, as complicated as the one with the US. And it was just, oh, yeah, yeah we'll get it done. We're, we're, we're not, we don't need an extension. We're getting out. And obviously, COVID has made it worse in the sense that the talks were stopped for a bit because everybody seemed to have the, the this bloody virus. But even if that hadn't been the case, Johnson's shallow machismo in not allowing enough time for a negotiation uh, meant that these uh, talks were always going to end chaotically. And this uh, related question is, when the UK was negotiating the withdrawal agreement under May's premiership, lots of animosity from sections of the media was directed towards Ollie Robert Robbins, her Europe advisor. Do you remember he went out there negotiating for her for a deal, incidentally, 100 times better than the flimsy deal that might emerge and about 10,000 times better than a no deal. Anyway, we all know what happened. This is in contrast to the praise being heaped upon David Frost, who advises Johnson. What impact and influence do these advisers have? Can they override the Prime Minister? It's a good point. Uh, Frost, uh, I don't know if you've seen him going into meetings with Barnier. You know, he wears this little Union Jack thing on his jacket label a little badge and I think he has bought wholly into the idea that you know Great Britain holds all the ace cards you know you just watch us and anyway we can manage on our own and all the rest of it but in the end he represents Johnson and Cummings they are the ones calling the tunes and you're right, he's had an easier ride than Robbins because a lot of the Eurosceptic press saw him as a Remainer, working for a Remainer Prime Minister. Frost is a Brexiteer working for a Brexiteer Prime Minister. So he's going to get a softer ride until the consequences of his ineptitude become clearer, which I think will certainly be the case if there is uh, no deal. But he, he has limited influence. He carries out instructions but he has influence in the sense that he's the one who meets Barnier and um, can make intelligent judgments on the progress of the talks or messianic, ideologically driven misjudgments about the way these talks are going and the attitude of the EU. I think he thinks, you know, this is this is Churchillian and Cummings and Johnson are leading the rehabilitation of the UK all this kind of nonsense. But um, that's why that is the case. Let's now go on to another question. Thank you very much, uh, Noah. Keep these uh, questions coming. There's one here from Richard uh, Pinchbeck. 
thank you for the podcast thank you very much for listening and what let's just get down to the question given the uh, hostile view the government has of the eu should we expect the uk government to take an even more hostile view of the snp than the eu and further to that to what extent do you think the government may attempt to follow the approach of the spanish government in dealing with catalan independence requests and do you think there's a possibility the government may even seek to close the scottish parliament Oh, well, you're entering a kind of civil war scenario there, Richard. No, I don't. I mean, I think they are deadly serious at the moment in saying there won't be a referendum in Scotland on independence, whatever happens to the SNP, who I think are going to get a majority in the Scottish parliamentary elections next May. One interesting thing I can report on, and it's the best argument I've heard so far, is some of those who argued in Scotland, led the campaign for the status quo in the last Scottish referendum, uh, they kind of think it's almost gone. You know, looking at the polling, the numbers um, of under 45s who back independence is a very big majority. And so people like Alistair Darling are, are proposing to Keir Starmer, if the SNP win an overall majority, accept that there will have to be another referendum. But make sure that every dot and comma of the subsequent independent settlement is agreed in advance. So there isn't another referendum like Brexit and the last Scottish referendum on a vague outcome. We leave the European Union, yes or no. Scotland independent, yes or no. But on a specific where the border will be what currency will be used, um, what happens to the so-called Barnet formula where money goes to Scotland from the Treasury in London and all those kind of things. Because I think it's, it's a very smart proposition. These referendums conducted on a fantasy are a disaster area. Inevitably, the campaign is a fantasy on all sides, both sides, and the outcome reflects nothing specific. So that, I think, is a very good way round it. But I think some of the more apocalyptic scenarios that you reflect on is unlikely. Uh, although you never know with this government, to be honest. Anyway, l- l- just two more very quickly from Kerry Hiles. Kerry asks, at Prime Minister's questions, recently Boris Johnson seemed Uh, pathetically frustrated that Keir Starmer didn't ask him about the withdrawal agreement to the extent that he sort of asked himself the question and gave his pre-prepared blustering answer. Yeah, that happens. You know, he, he was really hoping Starmer would ask and fall into various traps. So to what extent do you think the withdrawal agreement is actually led by domestic political considerations, enabling Johnson to say, right, it's England, Britain against Europe and Labour on the side of these traitors in Europe. I think there's a bit of that. I think there is a miscalculation in number 10 that the EU would think, oh my God, they're deadly serious about no deal. Look how serious they are. They're even willing to break the law. Oh, we better give them all that they want. And, you know, the level of miscalculation in this breaking the international law was deeply revealing because this is the only number 10 I know which do not think through the eventualities of just about every move being made. You know, it's one of the, when I wrote this book on pr- prime ministers, 
out now in every good bookshop from uh, Harold Wilson to Boris Johnson and on Amazon, etc. I notice so many differences between Johnson and all the others. And one of them is this inability to look ahead and contemplate what would happen if we do this and then how do we respond to that. And so I think there were political calculations in that decision and all of them were misjudged. This is not a number 10 of geniuses, contrary to some mythology. Related to that, Tim Freeman asks, American, will there be an American trade deal if uh, Trump wins? And will there be one, of course, if uh, Biden wins? Now, if the Biden, Biden is publicly critical of this breaking of the law and has regarded uh, Johnson as a kind of Trump-like figure, so I think they're in trouble if Biden wins. If Trump wins, there will be a higher, much higher chance of a quick trade deal, but it won't be a very good one for Britain. I mean, the idea that Trump is doing this altruistically is, again, you know, a kind of part of the mad mythology at the moment. He's doing it because he can see a country on its knees desperate for a deal. And therefore, he thinks he'll get a really good deal, which he might do, because it would involve food and agriculture and all these other things, which will incidentally hit one of the uh, core areas of support for the Tories under normal times, the farmers. But I can tell you, speaking to some senior representatives of the NFU these days, that's not where they are at the moment. They are apoplectic. One of the weird topsy-turvy elements of British politics. There are many more, as you know, and we'll explore more next week. We've done more than half an hour. If you're running, you should have done the 5k. Now, thank you for your questions. I'm so sorry we didn't have time for more, but next time, as they say, oh, somebody said to me I should read the email address out. The address, I will read it. It's steverick14 at icloud.com. So I'll spell it uh, S-T-E-V-E- R-I-C, and then the number 14, so it's steverick14 at icloud.com. Do send me uh, questions, thoughts. We'll try and do a longer podcast next week because God knows where we'll be by then. Hopefully see some of you at the Greenwich Theatre next Saturday, as I say, with social distancing and everything else very much in place. And um, yeah, keep safe, keep following the twists and turns. And let's get together next week to try, try, try and make sense of it all. Thanks very much for listening. Bye.